All right, welcome to the broadcast. Charles Moskowitz here. My guest is none other than Dr. E. Michael Jones, the author of Logos Rising and a whole ton of other books, all excellent, great stuff. The Culture Wars, he's the editor and publisher. Mike, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Charles. Good to see you again. Same here. Um, I'm really enjoying the book. I read it very slowly, one or two pages at a time, because it's the kind of book you can't breeze through. And it's brilliant. Uh, it's, it's important. Um, you don't say a lot about Judaism, which I'm grateful for. <laughs> the little bit that you do say is, the little you do say is not nice, but either way, you know, focus on the important issue, I think, which is the, the definition of reality. And, um, you know, I, I guess I want to start out with the definition of Logos as you define it in the book. Yeah, Logos... Uh is the Greek word for word. Uh, and, uh, but it's more than that. And so I remember when I was studying Greek, you open up the dictionary and there are column after column of equivalence for that word. Uh, and that's why it's an important word because we simply don't have those equivalents when we use the word word. The, cl the classic example of this misconception or miscomprehension is the gospel of St. John begins with uh, the sentence, in the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. Well, I don't know what that means. I've, I've, I've said this before. Uh, people have written back to me to say, you know, I've read it all my life. I didn't know what it meant either. But if you say, in the beginning there was Logos, which is what he wrote, in Arche in Logos, and you bring all of those columns of equivalence that we don't have in English into the picture, then it starts to make sense. So in the beginning, there was rationality, there was reason, there was an order to the universe, there was there was language, and there was uh, logos, and logos is God. <clears throat> so in other words, this is what happened at the beginning, that God was there, he's, he's logos incarnate, uh, and the universe is a manifestation of his his being, his rationality, uh, and and that's why it's it's uh, a rational creation. Now the the other part is that obvious Saint John was obviously taking Genesis as his model, because in the beginning yeah. in that book we say in the beginning God created heaven and earth. Right. Okay. So here's the second time around, and uh, now we're talking about. Uh, a, a kind of recap, but we're taking it to a higher level. Well, when I looked at the first sentence in the Gospel of John, that's exactly what I saw. The first sentence in the Torah, what Christians call the Old Testament. Right. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And that is a core belief of Judaism. Every Jew, every day, every religious Jew, that is, says a prayer that, that reiterates that. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech olam. Blessed be the Lord our God, the King of the universe. It's an acknowledgement that God created, King of universes, same as creator of universe, the creation, which is the universe. Right. And that this is the very foundation of Logos, as you describe it. It's, in other words, that when you talk about proving the existence of God, you point out you cannot create something out of nothing. There right. has to have been a something for there to be another something. I mean, it's a mathematical equation. It's the idea of the zero. The zero cannot be a one or a negative one. It is separate. It is nothingness. It's a description of the void. And then out of that void comes something. And the only way for that to happen is 
through God. I mean, there has right. to have been a absolutely event. You have to have God. That's the only rational explanation for a beginning, for a real beginning, meaning creation, which means a beginning out of nothing. You have to have God. It's the only rational explanation for a beginning. Exactly, and it also gets into the very strange separation in in, in the Enlightenment of. Um, philosophy and faith with science, which is, a, I think, a pseudo development, because the idea of a creation by some supernatural means is, is philosophical and scientific as much as it is religious. Now, as far as, you know, when I also read the book of John's first sentence, it occurs to me, and I got a little bit of a, um, a, a, a support for this, from Dr. Henry Abramson. He's a, he's a very good Jewish historian. I heard him interviewed by Tim Flanders on the meaning of Catholic. And he said that um, the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Torah by 70 rabbis in Egypt in Greek times done under the Ptolemies, he took the concept, they took the concept of the Shekinah, which is the Hebrew word for the, the, the holiness, the um, the presence, the glory of right. God. Right. And that, that's a word that is throughout the Torah. It's the whole, the glory of God was on top of the tabernacle. And it, the first mention of that is in the book of Genesis, when the Shekinah, God breathed the Shekinah into Adam and thus gave him a soul. He gave him consciousness. And the Greek translation of the word Shekinah is logos. And so therefore you have the word because God gave Adam the ability to speak and to identify the creation, the existence. And then he goes on to, uh, you know, give names to all of living things. And, and that's in a sense, the very first act of humanity on earth. And it sort of defined us, it separated us from all other living beings. And that this is reiterated by John in the New Testament, the word. It's right. the Shekinah, the, the, the idea of the, it's, it's the merge of the expression of the glory of God with, you know, existence, with, with creation. Right. Actually, I would, uh, I would, I just did this, did a review of a, a book by uh, David Hawkes called uh, The Reign of Anti-Logos. And uh, he gets into, he talks about uh, academe right now, the problems in academe, but he ends up quoting Jacques Derrida. <clears throat> Jewish philosopher uh, who has a book called uh, of grammatology, which is nothing but a long attack on the real presence, which is the other way I would translate Shekinah. He's got this whole thing about how do things become discourse? Is there a real presence? And at the end of it, he comes to the conclusion, no, there's, there's no real presence. There is only language. And then he goes into saying, well, when did this happen? When did everything become discourse? And I think, I think he's, what he's talking about is the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple was the, the uh, when, every, what happened, you know this, but I mean, basically, when the temple's gone, what are we going to do? And uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai said, well, we'll start a school. And we have synagogues now. We don't have a temple, but we have a synagogue. And I think this is what uh, Derrida is talking about, about the, the real presence disappears and everything is now discourse. So it's kind of like a, a, a weird um what should I say? A weird take on the Shekinah, which I would, uh, I, I think you're right. It's, it, it's Logos, but in this instance, I would say real presence. I think that's what we're talking about here. 
Well, you know, I don't know a lot about Derrida. I'm not up to that part in your book. I know that he- It's not, it's, he's a minimal role. He's really not part of the book. But yeah. I'm saying that what you have here is, is uh, a, a, Jew, a Jew philosopher whose whole life is an attack on the Shekinah and an attack on Logos. And he, he made a whole career out of that in academe here. And that's part of the problem in academe. That's just a side point, you know, take it wherever you want, want to take it. Well, I mean, I think that he was one of considered one of the fathers of the postmodern times, you know, right. the, the, which right. is the denouement of belief. And in that sense, I would describe him, I'm not saying literally, but generally as a Sabadian Jew. You know, he was in rebellion against Logos. Logos, that's right. That's, ac but, but that's absolutely not, right. That's not the conventional Judaism that we apply no it has so nothing it, it's the direct contradiction of what we were just talking about which is basically about genesis and the and, and creation right. and god creating something out of nothing that's, that's right. exactly the opposite which remains and is still the very core theme and mission of the jewish covenant and jewish faith you know to know god and to be a light unto the nations for the rest of the world to know god so then when we all bring up ourselves to the point where we do know God, and as such, we understand Logos, and we understand the, the, um, the synthesis between, between God and Logos, then we can bring about the Messianic age. Right. That's, that was my hope. I wanted to take, see, I, I just, there was just an instance, uh, one of my Muslim friends sent me this article about Cardinal Sarah showing up in Iran and having interfaith dialogue. And you didn't hear about it because nobody, nobody, it didn't go anywhere. It's, how is it ever going to go anywhere? In other words, if you show up and I'm the Catholic and you're the Muslim and we're going to talk, well, all you do is reinforce the fact that you're the Catholic and they're the Muslim and that's it. It's over. It's mm -hmm. the end. Now, I would have gone there and I would have said, let's talk about Logos because I've done this before. I, you know, I don't want to get involved in Muslim Christian dialogue. I think it's a waste of time, but I do want to talk about Logos and let's see where that can take us because we have a duty to be creatures of Logos because that's the way God created us. God created us as rational creatures. We have a duty to follow Logos. So let's take that. Let's take up that discussion. And I've done by that. And I think you do an interesting job, by the way, of analyzing um, Islamic belief as fidus in that it's uh, everything literally comes from God. There's no separation. There's no, in other words, God is, and in a way it's sort of also pantheistic as described by Spinoza in that, uh, you know, God is everything. He's in, you know, the rocks on the, on the ground and he's in the ocean and that everything is predetermined as such as opposed to the idea that there was a separation. There was at a moment when the supernatural created creation and thus, yeah, there, there is a whole there is a whole chapter on Islam in in the Logos Rising, yeah. and uh, I tried to link it to um, uh, the Trinity. Now, you, you, that's that's Trinity is something you accept by faith. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can, you can't prove you, there's no way you could you can come to the conclusion that God created the world. You can come to that conclusion. You can come to that uh, with just by reason alone. You can't come to the Trinity at all by reason alone. And so you would think, well, I guess it's optional. Well, it turns out I don't think it's optional because I think that what happened with Islam is that they got their idea of God or, or let's say Christ from the Nestorian heretics who denied that Jesus Christ was true God. Mm -hmm. And that had an effect. 
it had an effect on Islam. And that effect on Islam was compounded by lots of uh, historical circumstances. But uh, the spread of Islam, let's say to Persia, uh, was by military conquest. It wasn't by persuasion. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm in Mashhad and I meet the, the Ayatollah Shahrud, who was a very influential guy. He was an advisor to both the, the current Supreme Leader and the Ayatollah Khomeini, very influential guy, had been sent to Russia to hand a letter to Gorbachev from the Ayatollah Khomeini. First thing out of his mouth is, the Saudis are terrible. We're, you know, they're, they're, this is not Islam. This conflict has come all the way to this day. We still have this conflict between the Arabic conquer, conquerors and the Persian conquered people. Uh, that's not going to go away. And it goes back to this, let's uh, put it this way, it's a complicated issue, but I think if we took it back to Logos and we started with Logos and let's talk about that and let's work our way forward, I think we'd have some way of, of dealing with this issue. That's why I wrote the book. Okay, I mean, I don't know, is there a comparison between the conflict between the, not to get off on the sidetrack, the Sunnis and the Shiites and Catholics and Protestants? I don't know, maybe. Yes, yes, the Shia are Catholics and the Sunni or Protestants, broadly, if you want to put it that way. Right. And I also discern, and again, I'm not a Jewish scholar, and I'm, I'm not a rabbinic figure at all, but, but it seems to me that there is a natural understanding of a trinity within Judaism, and that, that is that there was a creator of the universe, there is the created universe, and there's the Shekinah, the spirit, the, right. uh, you know, the glory of God. And I mean, obviously, we don't do it in the context of Christology, but we still, there is still that trion balance. And I think that to a certain extent, Kabbalistic understanding, esoteric Judaism advances that, particularly when the Zohar was published during the Spanish Inquisition, where it talked about, it literally gave a three cornered view of the Kether, the create the king and, and how that would break down. So you have that balance and you have, of course, you, you talk about, I didn't get to this part of the book yet. I'm really curious about it. And that is about Hegel and his development of the, uh, the dialectic, which I think from what I understand took God out of the picture and created the, a natural conflict between the thesis and the, and the antithesis, which was then advanced by Karl Marx in his political theories. Yeah, well, uh, Hegel, to begin with, was a, a Lutheran uh, theology student. Mm -hmm. He was in a seminary. He's 19 years old, and the French Revolution breaks out. So he's influenced by the Enlightenment and also by, by Christian theology. And he's trying to come to, up to some type of synthesis. And he did, because, uh, you know, there is evidence of the Trinity in nature. Okay, they found it in geometry. You can find it all over the place, yeah. evidence in nature. But uh, he saw the dialectic as an example of the Trinity. So you begin with, with uh, a unity, okay? And then you uh, have to, so unity is one. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is Pythagorean theorem. Pythagoras had some understanding of the Trinity. So you begin with unity, which is the number one, and then you have multiplicity, which is the number two. Now, if you put one and two together, you get three. And the three is unity in multiplicity, and that's the Trinity. 
Yeah. So, so it's it's in Pythagoras and Plato. Uh, I'm sorry, Hegel was smart enough to understand this, and so he said, "Well, you can do this in time as well." So you have the unity uh, uh, at the beginning, and then you have multiplicity. And then what is the purpose of the combination of unity and multiplicity? Well, it's a type of synthesis in consciousness. And so all of human history is this development of consciousness along the lines of the dialectic. That's what Hegel did. Great idea. He was on the verge. of. It's a real step forward in terms of making logos understandable to people using an enlightened vocabulary. But uh, as I say in the chapter, uh, there was a problem here. Okay. And the problem is if you want to study the Trinity, that's, you know, high above human understanding. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, all the spiritual uh, teachers say, well, contemplation is the way you study the trinity in other words it's kind of like a religious yeah. preparation well hegel was not he's he was not involved in contemplation when he was writing the phenomenology of the spirit he was having an affair with his chambermaid yeah. and uh, the culmination of all of these things coming together is basically napoleon shows up he defeats uh the uh, uh the uh, army at jena the german army at jena mm -hmm. uh his chambermaid announces that she's pregnant and the he's got to take the uh, write the prologue and send it off to the printer of the phenomenology all those things come together and so what happens in this crisis what does he do he falls back on what he considers basic christianity which is luther mm -hmm. and luther was involved in the same type of problem you see the same yeah. dynamic in luther which is basically a sexual problem disrupting your spiritual uh, uh, synthesis. So Luther, in this instance, uh, if after he broke with the church, he was a slave of his passions. He ended up marrying some nun. Mm -hmm. And that's bad. That's bad enough. You broke both broke your vows. But more serious is when you try and make some type of theology out of your sin, which is exactly what Luther did. So he said, I'm not I'm not guilty. It was God who did it. And so Hegel now we're a step further here with philosophy. He introduces evil into the dialectic. So the second part of the dialectic is evil confronting good and evil is necessary before the progression of history. And you, you just wrecked it because that is not compatible with the Trinity. You cannot put evil into God. There is no possibility of having God and evil. And the only reason you're interested in putting evil into God is because you are you can't say you're sorry. You can't say right. you did something wrong and you can't ask for forgiveness. You know, they're building up a whole religious system based on their own guilt and their own sense of um, denying sin and, and trying to, um, you know, shift. You know, it's kind of a mass. It's used a psychological term. It's a huge case of projection. Projection it's, is exactly what yeah, we're that talking about. They've done, and we can take a look. You, you do some brilliant work on what Freud was about in that way, and in a way, it underlines the whole modern, postmodern ethos of like that. You know, kind of like legitimizing, mainstreaming, and justifying sin. Right. Uh, That's exactly. Know, and it wrecked what was a great step, what could have been a great step forward in the understanding of Logos. Wrecked it. But it also shows that concepts like the Trinity, concepts like Logos, can be corrupted by people who have a, an ill intent. And in a sense, uh, the idea of the, uh, of the dialectic in the hands of people like Karl Marx and people today 
without when you remove any divine element to it, it just becomes the the creation of and the furtherance of conflict between opposite parts as a way to achieve right something else. Well, that that's ex that's exactly what Hegel's student said to him. Feuerbach was a student in Berlin. Yes. And Feuerbach wrote to him and say, you don't need God for the dialectic. The dialectic functions all by itself because it became a machine as soon as the second part becomes evil. Okay. And so Feuerbach understood that. And then it was, it was Marx who read Feuerbach who then decided, well, we'll have dialectical materialism. Right. So the dialectic is now material. No, that's wrong. It, it, it's the exact opposite. You can't have dialectical materialism. They're contradictory in terms. You can only have dialectic with spirit, with Geist, which is right. what Hegel's, Hegel said. And that is the movement of uh, Logos in human history. So what happened at this point, after the death of Hegel, you have uh, European thought just sliding into materialism. Uh, and, and Marx also, was part of that slide. And the Hegelian, the Hegelian dialectic was also advanced in the field of science by Darwin, who viewed the, uh, you know, the crashing of the species as creating this new you know, species. I mean, that whole theory is based on this idea that life somehow miraculously emerged out of what he called the little warm pond. I mean, it's, it's about as, uh, I mean, as mystical as anything that they accuse us of, of believing in. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Now it I want to, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I want to go back to just an inch, a, a little insight into uh, Saint John, the uh, Gospel writer. Um, according to uh, Talmudic legend, rabbinic legend, and again, I don't know if this is. I'm not a Talmudic expert here, um, but it gets to some of the issues of the uh, the difference, you know, the conflict between Judaism and, and Christianity. According to rabbis, and I think that it's part of a discussion that, that is in the Talmud, St. John was a, um, an early Christian believer in Jesus who would go to the synagogue and proselytize. And the rabbis, in response to that, put a little extra piece of language on the prayers, which would call out proselytizers. It would say, do you believe, you know, in, I don't know the exact wording of it, but my understanding is that it's still there. And it basically, if you, if you said this prayer, it would mean that you would have to denounce Jesus. And so the proselytizer, the believer would not be able to say it. Then they would be identified and they would be banned from the synagogue. And there was bitterness and that created a conflict. Right. And that St. John was one of those people who was banned from the synagogue because he did not say this prayer. Right. And so he looked back with anger at Judaism because of that. And a lot of the anger that's in the Gospel of John is based upon his rage at Judaism for his being kicked out of the synagogue. Now, I'm not... Yeah, you know, sour gonna, grapes. The whole yeah. Gospel of St. John is sour no, grapes. No, it's not all sour grapes. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that some of the business about... You know, some of the very angry stuff in there about Judaism might be that, and it reflects the conflict at the time. And I think that the rabbis also showed a lot of fear and remorse in a way about putting in that language because they knew that there was going to be a negative consequence to it. And they were fearful of that. They didn't want to alienate people. But at the same time, they did not find it tolerable that people were coming into the synagogue and interrupting their services and you know, in a sense, overthrowing the, what they believe to be Logos. Yeah. So you had 
the beginnings of the conflict that continues on to this day. Right, right. You're absolutely right. Uh, a, better, a better example is St. Paul, because we know exactly uh, more about his background than, than St. John. And we know more about the conflict from St. Paul as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the point in terms of uh, my book is that basically, at a certain point, uh, Paul couldn't preach in synagogues anymore. Right. It's that simple. We know who you are. <laughs> You're not allowed in. You go, go someplace else. And so he had this vision of uh, some guy beckoning him from across the Aegean. And so he left, he went to Greece. Uh, now he was, ca- he was uh, capable of doing that because he spoke Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, St. Peter could not do that. St. Peter was stuck in Jerusalem. It's that's it, you know, that's, and they had a conflict, their own conflict about uh, how much of Judaism are we going to bring into the, to the, the new religion? Right. Do we have to, do the new, do the new believers have to get circumcised? Do we have to uh, abstain from eating pork? Blah, blah, blah. They had a big, uh, basically toe-to-toe battle, and uh, St. Paul won. And at this point, he heads off to Greece. And at this point, I'm saying that he had to have a new explanation. So if you have the old, uh, like the St. Matthew explanation of Jesus, who is Jesus? Well, he's the son of uh, Joseph and Joseph, blah, 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 all the way back to to a a Jewish genealogy. Well, you go to Greece— Nobody's going to know who these people are. So you have to have a new beginning. Well, he didn't. So he went to the Areopagus, uh, which is a Greek philosophical society. He had come from Ephesus. St. John was in Ephesus. And he gave the Ephesus speech at the Areopagus. Basically, Ephesus was a place where they worshipped Diana. She's this grotesque figure with all these breasts. The silversmiths made a lot of money. The whole economy revolved around building idols. And he gave a speech against idols. Well, they weren't idol worshipers. They were philosophers. And so he gives the, you know, like the elevator speech to the philosophers. And he says, well, this guy, Jesus, you re- he's important. And he rose from the dead. Well, they said, okay, oh, he rose from the dead. Huh? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that some other time. And they all walked out. And for 500 years, there was no church in, in Athens. So I'm saying that St. John knew this. And he came up with a new introduction, which is basically uh, uh, in the beginning, there was Logos. Mm-hmm. And Logos is God. Now, if he had said that, he would have had a discussion on his hands. Right. But he right. didn't. And mm-hmm. I'm saying that was the whole new movement. So you're right. They had to break with the synagogue. The synagogue, they were expelled from the synagogue. Right. And so they left the synagogue behind and they went to talk to the bigger Greek world in language that the Greeks could understand. Right. And it's sort of, in a way, it was a, it was a, um, a, frankly, a form of Judaism that could be understood by the Gentile world. And uh, the other- this, this, this comes out, this brings up an important issue, okay? Yes. okay? The true identity. What is the true identity of the Jew? Now I've dealt with this in the Jewish revolutionary spirit, but the true identity of the Jew is based on the Torah. Yes. Right? I yes. mean, we're, we're not gonna argue about that. No, no. Okay, no. so the only question is, is Jesus the fulfillment of the Torah or not? And there are Jews who said, yes, he is. Right. And they accepted that. Uh, it's not a question of, uh, are we going to repudiate the Torah? No, we're not. There's a group called Marcionites who said that the Old Testament was written by the devil. Well, that was rejected by the church as a heresy. Obviously, mm. the church was based on this, but obviously there's something new here uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. 
and it divided the Jews between those who accepted Jesus as the fulfillment of the Torah and those who rejected Jesus, saying that he was not that, that fulfillment, that it's something else. We're going to wait for the Messiah to come in the future. Exactly. That was a conflict. That, that was the conflict. That's still the conflict in a way. It is I, still I the conflict. You're absolutely right. Although I, I just would hasten to note that Judaism does not exist as a reaction to Christianity. It's not a rejection of anything. It's its own organic, dynamic belief in the covenant of, of, of Sinai. And that um, the other thing I want to ask is that uh, this is, again, Talmudic. And again, I'm not an expert here. But there's information in the Talmud that indicates that St. Paul, when he was in Antioch, and he was having this very debate that you're talking about, what should we, should we tell people they have to be kosher? You know, I mean, we wanted, he wanted to do an outreach to the Gentile world, and he got into a big argument with the uh, Antioch Jewish, early you know, Jewish community, which was the Christian Jewish community at the time. And they said, you're gonna have to go back to Jerusalem and talk to St. James, who was the head of the church. He was Jesus' successor. He was, I think, Jesus's brother, if I'm not mistaken, and that he was essentially the head of the church for something like 30 years, and he was a devout Jew also, besides. And so uh, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. He meets James and his group, and they eventually came up with the, the, um, the solution, I guess, in that you can go forth, preach to the Gentiles. You don't have to observe Jewish specific laws because the Gentile world is not obligated to do that. But the only thing you need to remember is that you have to inculcate the Noahide covenant into the faith so that all of mankind will be in accord with the first covenant between God and, man and mankind, which represents Noah and the rainbow and all of that. And, and that there were, you know, the rabbis of the Talmud, and it was more codified later, basically synthesized seven principles in the Noahide covenant. And they're not Jewish principles. They're, they're general universal principles that have to do with, you know, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't, you know, you, you need to, there should be a separation in a way it's established a secular government because it says you have to have a separation of um, government, you know, like the judges have to be separate. I mean, that goes to the story of, uh, of, um, of Jethro with Moses in, in Sinai. And you, you can't be cruel to animals. I mean, there's seven basic principles. And so that way, Paul could go forth on his evangelistic mission and convert the world because it, it conculcated that, that covenant. What do you think? I think that uh, the Noahide laws are the Jewish interpretation. And the, the church is not going to accept the Talmudic interpretation of anything. They have their own commission. They don't have to borrow it from the Jews. I, I get it from both sides here. I, I get guys who are telling me, okay, why should I become a Catholic? That's just Judaism. They're, they're all, it's, it's run by Jews. Jews control the Catholic church, blah, 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 blah. No, no, there was a difference. I said, look, if you go back there, obviously this grew out of the Hebrew people. Obviously it grew out of that, but you're missing something. There was a huge conflict here a huge type of course correction that took place. And one of the fundamental uh, fa aspects of this is that uh, the Jewish interpretation as of then is new. First of all, it is new. Judaism is a, is a religion that is newer 
than Christianity. It took place after Christianity. I'm talking about the synagogue, the creation of the synagogue that we've already mentioned, the creation of the Talmud, which all took place after the crucifixion. And they're saying this Judea, this Judea, Judaizing, or what do you call it? This Judaic interpretation is no longer normative. Those people don't have the authority to tell us what is the basic principles. It's not going to work that way. We can come together. I mean, there's a tradition in Catholicism where we'll say, well, uh, reason can achieve a lot. So let's talk about the natural law. What can we achieve by reason? And I think you can come to reason to something like, well, murder's, murder's bad, murder's wrong, okay? And then you can take it another step and say, well, even if, if, if this is a creature in the womb, it's still a human being and it's still wrong. So abortion's wrong. And yeah. you can argue this way. I think you can argue this way according to what you would say is a, a, a neutral middle ground, which is logos. That's what I'm saying. Some people call it the natural law. There are people who say that the natural law, that's just uh, crypto Catholicism. There are a lot of people who talk that way. I'm saying, no, I'm, the whole point of this book is there's lots of uh, uh, agreement that we can reach if we begin the discussion with logos. That's the point of the book. Okay, and uh, by the way, I don't agree with you that Judaism is new and that it, it emerged after the um, destruction of the Second Temple. I mean, that's and, and I also Jew, Jewish understanding of our scriptures, and they are our scriptures with regard to uh, Jesus, are very different than Christian understanding, and that that's something that there's a lot of um, work on that going back millennia. In I said, now, wait a minute, let me, when you say our scriptures, what scriptures are you referring to? Well, what, what Christians call the Old Testament. Yes. Okay. Well, well I, I'm not, I don't that's agree with our that. Book. <laughs> no, I, I don't agree with that. Okay, fine. I, mean, I don't I, agree with that. All I'm right. saying, you, I'm saying. You agree that, that it is our book though, don't you? I mean, no, 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 I don't, I don't agree with that at all. All right. All right. The Talmud is your book. I, I fully concede that the Talmud is, is your book. The Torah, no, no, the Torah is not your book. Well, then so, why do we have, when we go to synagogue on, on Shabbos, there's not a Talmud up in the ark. We right, take out I know. the Torah, we read the Torah, we honor and revere the Torah, and we, we, we talk about the Torah. The Talmud is just a basically a, a study guide to support the Torah. It's not the Torah. It's not at the same level. The Torah is our- I, I agree 100% with what you're saying. The Talmud is not on the same level as the Torah. I'm saying you have no right to claim the Torah, Torah as your book because the Torah is the common property of, let's put it this way, it's the, common, it's the common property of those two groups of Jews that I talked about at okay. the beginning. All right. There were Jews that accepted Jesus Christ, and there are Jews who rejected him. And the, common, the Torah is the common property of those two groups of people, and it's the rightful property of the Jews who followed uh, Jesus Christ. So no, we, we, we cannot, we cannot, we, I'm telling you right now, uh, we as Catholics cannot relinquish Jewish ownership uh, to the to the um, to the Torah to the Old Testament. Okay. We and, cannot and do it. Jews cannot relinquish ownership of our Torah. But look, I mean, you're right in that it's a common book of of both faiths. But it's it's our story. It's you know we are contend that it's it's universal and the themes in it are universal. But it is the story of the Israelites and the Jewish people and, and, our, and our struggle with God. And Absolutely. also that, that Judea, modern Judaism did not emerge after the Second Temple. I mean, the two strains of Judaism did, that being Christianity and Judaism. But in the broad sense, 
Talmudic Judaism, I would suggest, started with King Josiah in the old in the uh, Kingdom of Judah when he brought forth the book with his prophets and he read them publicly and the people came back to God. And then okay. after after the Babylonian exile, when um, the, the Emperor Cyrus, who was called Messiah, by the way, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, in writing, gave a decree saying the Jewish people should go back to Judea, reestablish their commonwealth under Persian control and rebuild their temple. I mean, the entire document is literally in that book, and that is part of the New Testament. That is the beginning of Judaism in the modern sense. That is when you started to have the rabbis, who eventually became known as the Pharisees, start to develop in a way what we would today call a school system. They began to develop shuls. I mean, the word shul is school, where right. people would study the Torah, where they would come together in a minion and pray. You know, you did have the temple worship, but the temple worship was separate. And eventually the temple worship was less and less important in the Jewish con constellation, mainly because it was controlled by the Sadducees who were pro-Roman and who were pro-Greek and who were not particularly disposed toward the moral. Uh, first of all, it did not become less important. You could not fulfill the Mosaic covenant without a temple. You cannot do it. And when the temple was destroyed, that time it was destroyed and it was rebuilt. The last time it was destroyed, it never got rebuilt. And that's when the Shekinah disappeared. So Jack Derrida is right. The Shekinah did disappear. Okay. No. Now, no. I, well, I, I want to go back to the beginning here. We always have this conflict here. Anytime we come into a discussion right. between Jews and then not Jews. Right. Okay. Now, from the outside, uh, both groups would claim that there are Jews. I'm saying that there has, there is now this dual identity here. Okay, there's been the dual identity began with the arrival of Jesus Christ and the separation that we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. It's gone up to this day, so that you have Jews on the one hand who are trying to be faithful to a covenant that they can't be faithful to anymore because there's no temple, so you can't fulfill the, the, the requisite practices. And you've got a group of Jews, let's say epitomized by Jacques Derrida, who are rabidly anti-Logos in every, in the most extreme ontological sense of the term. And I'm saying this is this dual identity that I am, I am trying to deal with here. Okay. And I'm saying, I'm saying, so people will call me an anti-Semite. Okay, because anytime you disagree with a Jew, you get called an anti-Semite. Anytime you criticize a Jew, you call it an anti-Semite. And that's why I'm always grateful that we can talk because you're not like those Jews. Okay. Right. So we can talk about this dual identity. I mean, do you admit that there is a dual identity? I admit that, oh, you mean within Judaism? Yes. No, I think yes. there's one identity in Judaism, and that is faith in God and faith in the covenants of the Torah. And that we, uh, you know, as far as the temple itself goes, yes, the temple was destroyed. It doesn't mean that the Shekinah has disappeared from the Jewish people. Obviously, it didn't. As from my perspective, we have continued worship. We don't have the literal sacrifice of the of the lamb, but we have kosher, and we have means by which we pray that that is a substitute until the temple is rebuilt. We do have, and this is, you know, we have, if you look at the, um, I don't know if you studied the Jewish prayer book at all, 
but it has an intricate system by which we continue uh, in a way an indirect worship at the temple and we pray for the the day when the temple is rebuilt right. and in fact the creation of the state of right. israel right and I, th I think i think i think jerusalem is a step right. in that direction i i i'm i at this point i'm agreeing more with Jacques derrida than i am with you okay, okay? but i mean let's that, that's I think that's as far as we can take that. So let's get okay, back to fine. And oh, let's get way, back to I, Logos. Let's get back to Logos. Let me just say that I also understand what you're talking about about the revolutionary Jew. I mean, that's also true. That's not that's a heresy in Judaism. Just let me let me it. let me just say that this the second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit is coming out, and I've been confronted uh, for over the past eleven years with instances where I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm just drawn into a discussion, like the Armenian genocide. I got a call from a guy wants me to go to Armenia, we need to talk about they need we need to talk, they'll be happy to see you and then COVID arise. So I don't go so but, but I wrote an article anyway, so I started looking into it, you cannot explain the Armenian genocide without reference to the revolutionary Jew, you cannot do it. All and right. this, this, conf this conformed, I'm, I'm talking about people like Parvus. No, I, 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 I crucial, crucial figure. What happened here is that both, both the young Turks and the Dashnaks and the Hunchaks, which are the, uh, uh, the Armenian revolutionary groups, they both ended up going to the same universities and they picked up the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Literally, it was not a Nyavolia. The same, the group right, that, that gave us Lenin and all these people. I, yeah, I wasn't really prepared to get into that today, although I, I will touch on what I what I've studied a little bit. But before I do, the 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 revolutionary Jew is as much a heretic to Judaism as the Cathars were a heretic to Catholicism, or for that matter, the Reformation or the Hussite movement. I mean, these I, are I, not I, I, I'm agreeing with you. Okay. I absolutely agree with you. What I'm trying to say is that there is this dual identity that we really have to deal with here. And I'm saying yeah, that no, look, there, I, there are two identities out there. There are two Jewish identities. There's one that is trying to maintain the connection with the tradition. And there's another group that is completely repudiating any connection. And I've and I've done a lot. I've, I've written about this in several of my books. It's the heresy of the false messiah, Shabtes V, and what that did to Judaism was very corrupting. Right. And that those are the people today who in a way control the high ground of Jewish culture in the same way that a Hellenized group of Jews controlled the high ground at the time of the Maccabees. And the yes, Maccabee re right. Maccabean rebellion was right. to overthrow them. But I, I, I was I was in I was in uh, Mashad with uh, Rabbi uh, David Weiss. He's part of Netarai Carter. You probably don't agree with them, but I said I said basically, look, if 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 all the Jews were like uh, Rabbi David here, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, we, we wouldn't be talking about we wouldn't be talking with with each other right now yeah. because it's the Jewish revolutionary spirit in particular neoconservatism and the invasion of Iraq and this whole disaster over there that brought us together. So we're not talking about that group of people. No, we're talking about the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And all I'm saying is that in over these 11 years, I wanted to thank you for mentioning it, but basically it's a category of reality. It's not something Mike Jones made up. It's out no, there. No, no, there, there it's is, out there. There is a revolution within Judaism. It's a fascinating subject. I mean, if it, if it was for Weiss, we wouldn't have Israel today either. That's I right. want to address briefly, since you brought it up, 
Mike, the uh, the business of the um, the Armenian genocide. You mentioned this group of the secret society in Russia, Volya. Not a Naya Volya. Now, I did a little research on them. And first of all, your definition of the Jewish revolutionary spirit in your book, which I read, you, you're mostly talking about non-Jews, or you're talking about people who might have had one Jewish grandparent, I mean, and, and that they are revolutionaries, they're communists. And, and you're, you're describing that as the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And I understand why, because we rejected Jesus, therefore we're in rebellion. But in the literal sense, you know, they're not particularly Jewish. And as far as the Novalia group goes, they actually were not Jewish in the beginning. I mean, the original members of that group were disaffected Russian aristocrats who drew a lot of their inspiration and their philosophy from Italian communists like uh, Bruno, I think his name, I, I did some research on this, who, I mean, I think nominally were Catholic. And it was only later, and they were anti-Semitic, I may add. I mean, uh, Bakunin was an anti-Semite. He was talking about the Rothschilds. Right. Trotsky was anti-Semitic too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but, and he had Jewish uh, background. A Jew, he, you can be a Jew and an anti-Semite. Well, he had Jewish background, but he was, you know, he was about as Jewish as we could name some Catholics calling themselves Catholic who were not. Um, so for, let me, let me say first The point of I'm all, making here is that it was only later in later stages that Jews were entering into that. It was not- right. It, that, you're right. You're right. The, the revolutionary movement in Russia split and there was the back to the land movement and the Jews were part of it. They weren't the whole thing. They were part of it. So they go to the peasants and they couldn't talk to the peasants. As soon as the peasants saw they were Jews, they report them to the police and they got nowhere. You can't talk. OK, at that point, they split off to the revolutionary movement, which was engaged in terrorism. OK, Daniel there's a damn rich Richard Pipes is the one who called Naya the first terrorist organization in the world. It right. was predominantly Jewish, which comes to the well, second not. point. There is never, there has never in human history been a group that has been exclusively Jewish uh, as a revolutionary group. It's never happened. So I did I didn't call this, I called the book the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Okay, it's a spirit that you you don't have to be Jewish to adopt the spirit. Well, you're, you're so you have you you have you have people like Cromwell. Was Cromwell a Jew? No. Did he have the Jewish revolutionary spirit? Yes, he did. The Puritans were Judaizers. They were they were Christians who wanted to be like Jews, wanted to act like Jews, wanted the benefits of being Jews. That's why I called it the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Well, well you, you ascribe any revolutionary movement as being Jewish because you describe Judaism as revolutionary because we rejected Jesus. That's an, isn't that in a nutshell? No, Louis Israel Newman wrote the book on this. Uh, the footnote is in there. And he said every Jews were involved in every single revolutionary movement in Europe. That's his testimony. That's not mine. They Rabbi might, Louis yeah, they, Israel they, Newman. Fine. They might have been involved. I don't know if they were involved in every movement, but they were not there. Well, he said that. All right. Therefore, but my point is that these are Jews who are heretics. I mean, they rejected Judaism as part of it. In a way, they took Jewish ideas and they perverted them to fit a revolutionary mold. Like and example. Didn't we, just, didn't we just talk about, yeah. we talked about well, this I, I at the that. beginning. I'm, yeah. I'm saying there are two groups 
of Jews out there. The Jews that are trying, in some sense, like Rabbi David, uh, who's trying to follow the Torah, Torah in spite of the fact that they've got no temple and you can't fulfill the Mosaic Covenant anymore. And there are Jews who are involved in what we've called the Jewish revolutionary spirit, which is a complete and total rejection of Logos whether it's a politically motivated rejection of Logos of the type you saw in Trotsky or a more philosophical rejection of Logos of the type you see in Jacques Derrida. That's what, that's what this is about. All right. No, I think that's fair enough in so far as that, first of all, the Jews who are following the Torah are not doing something that's artificial. They are part of the covenant. They are continuing the covenant. That's obvious to me. Um, you cannot Jews, fulfill uh, the covenant without a temple. You I cannot disagree. fulfill the covenant. I disagree. The issue of the revolutionary element in Judaism, that's also true, but I would suggest that they are heretic in the same way that you could point to the same revolutionaries that call themselves Christians, you know, like the Illuminati of, of Adam Weissach and Satanism and these are Christian movements. Anyway, Mike, you know, let's... Uh, uh, we should probably wrap it up. Um, you know, interesting, uh, amazing book. I am up to the chapter about Hegel. I'm looking forward to reading that. I admire your work immensely. And um, I'm looking forward to talking with you again when uh, you release the new edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Great. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Charles. If all Jews were like you, we wouldn't have problems today, okay? Well, you're never okay. going to get that because when you get three Jews, you have three arguments. <laughs> three Jews, you have four different opinions That's until true. I walk into the room and I unite the oh, Jewish people. Well, then, then, you're, <coughs> then maybe in a sense, you could be a crypto Jew. I don't know. All right, Mike, thank you so much again for joining me this afternoon. My pleasure. All right, have a good one. Okay, bye-bye.